Well, it's good to be back in God's house this morning here at Porchlight Baptist Church. Enjoyed the good singing that we just had. And always enjoy, enjoy singing. Gets us prepared for the preached word of God. And this morning, we're going to be taking our text out of the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We do have the verses up here on our um, digital signage monitor. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at uh, the first 12 verses, and our main focus is going to be on uh, probably verses 7 through 11. But uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. And here the Bible says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetedness. God is witness, nor of men sought we glory. Neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her, her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblamingly we behaved ourselves among you that believed. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God, who called you into his kingdom and glory. Father, thank you for the reading of your word this morning. Help us now as we try to preach. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to any fathers that are listening this morning. And our message today is going to be focused around on fathers. It's a uh, the traits of a biblical father. And we're going to be looking at that this morning from this text. And it may seem unusual from what we just read that this would be focused on a Father's Day message, but uh, you'll see as we get through here. But uh, yesterday, uh, I went with my mother to the graveside of my father and my grandfather. My dad passed away five years ago on February 25th, 2015. He was only 75 years old. Now, I know to a lot of people that's a, lot, it's a long time, but uh, I guarantee you when you hit 75, you're not going to think that you've been around here all that long. Uh, 75 is young these days for people. People are living a lot longer now due to uh, advances in medicines and things. But my father passed away from cancer, and uh, he suffered with that greatly there in his last uh, few weeks here on this earth. And so while it was, uh, it was painful to lose him, it was a joy to know that he would be in heaven, and I would get to, I'll get to see him again one day. But uh, as we visited those uh, grave sites, you know, you realize just how short time is and how you should cherish those that you love while you have the time here uh, in the present. 
we returned home after that, and me and my mother sat in her living room, and we talked some, and she began speaking about her life, and she said that she had lived a very good life, uh, not with without troubles or anything like that, but that she had lived a very good life. God had blessed her. She had been blessed with a great family, a great father, and also a great husband, of course, being, uh, being my dad. Uh, she spoke about how that she never had to experience some of the things that other people experience, such as abusive uh, behavior in the home and uh, foul language and, and cursing and uh, mistreating uh, of her mother or herself. She was never uh, had a hand laid on her in anger and that uh, how she really felt blessed by having that kind of life. You know, not everyone is uh, privileged to have that. Uh, it's only by God's grace and mercy that any of us have such a home and such a, uh, a testimony that we can give on how we were raised by our parents. And as she was talking about that, I was thinking of myself about my dad and, and how thankful I am that the Lord blessed me with a good father. Uh, just like she said, I, I never had to worry about my dad being you know abusive to my mother or, uh, you know, raging and uh, drinking and cursing and all that. We never saw any of that in our home. Uh, we were raised in a Christian home uh, by Christian parents. And so I am thankful for that. Uh, but if you were to ask me as a young man how I felt about my dad, probably as a young man, I would have told you, well, he likes to whip me and he doesn't let me do anything I want to do. That would have been the young me before I understood, had any understanding. You know, when I was a child, I thought I was a child. But once you become a man, then you, you, you think like a man. You understand the harsh realities of life sink in and you see how the world truly is. And so you become thankful at that point of how you were raised. Now some people, of course, like I said, were not raised in a good home such as I was and they may not be thankful for that. But we can thank the Lord that we do have a Heavenly Father who loves us and who always wants the best for us. But uh, listen, um, the truth is a father's influence on children is one of the greatest things uh, in the world. It can either make you or break you. A lot of people take after their dads. A lot of sons, they take after their dads. If their dad did a certain thing, the son did it. That's why you'll see a lot of preachers that have, uh, have sons that go into the ministry and are preachers. Uh, and you'll find other occupations. Their dad was a police officer, and so they become a police officer. But not only things like that, but also our characteristics, the traits that we have, uh, how we conduct ourselves, how we treat other people, how we treat our spouse, how we treat our children. A lot of that is, is passed down from the father to the children. I wish I could say I was good. I'm as good as a father as my dad was, but you'd have to ask my children about that. Now, here in our text, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians was not written specifically for fathers or mothers, even though there's the, the mention of both of those types of care here. Uh, he's, his letter is written to the church there in Thessalonica. And uh, he's mentioning traits of himself in the ministry toward that church. And so we can look at these traits that we find in a, in a true minister uh, and, and apply those to the traits of a spiritual or biblical father. How a father should conduct himself with his family and his children. 
And so that's why I titled the message this morning, uh, The Traits of a Biblical Father. Uh, here in our opening text, the, the human penman here, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church at Thessalonica. Thessalonica is the Roman capital of the province of Macedonia. You may remember when Paul was awaiting instructions to where he was going to go next in his second missionary journey, and he was tarrying at Troas, and as he laid on his bed, he had a vision that God gave him of a man from Macedonia who said, come over. And so he goes over to Macedonia and to Philippi and all those places, but uh, here in in Thessalonica being the, the capital of that whole area. A uh, very important seaport there. There were two main Roman roads that came in there. There was the, the main road from, uh, from Italy that came into that direction. And then there was also the, the sea route or the river that came down. I believe the Danube River, river came through there and, and then ended in the Aegean Sea. And so there was a large seaport there where a lot of trade was done. And so you can only imagine the many, many people that would come in and out of that city. And so you had a mixture. You have Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, Romans. You've got all these people present in that city. Now, Paul, on his second missionary journey, along with Silas and Timothy, uh, they come there to Thessalonica. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. You can see what all transpired there. I'm not going to read it this morning, but Paul... The Bible says, as his manner was, entered into the synagogue and started preaching Christ to them, started reasoning with them from the scripture concerning Christ. Now, the Bible tells us that there was many there that believed, a multitude of people that believed. Uh, a lot of women, it mentioned, and, and Greeks, there was different people that believed there. Uh, some Jews believed uh, when Paul started preaching. However, there was a, um, a, a, a bunch of these uh, uh, Jews that got up. The Bible called them, uh, I don't remember the term right now, um, unbelieving Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar. And so these, these Jews rose up that were unbelieving toward the gospel and they hated Paul, Silas, Timothy. They wanted to rid that city of them. And so they rose up and caused a, a big riot. In fact, they took a man named Jason, who was obviously allowing Paul and them to stay at his home. They drug him out of his home and arrested him and accused them of, of those that were turning the world upside down. And so uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas had to escape for their lives out of Thessalonica, and they went over to Berea. You remember Berea, where they searched the scripture? And uh, But the Thessalonians, when they heard that they were in Berea, they even came down there and run them out of there. So they hated Paul that much. And so Paul's time in Thessalonica during that time is a short time, probably maybe a month's time. The Bible says he was there for three Sabbaths reasoning there in the synagogue before they run him off. And so he was there approximately a month's time. But in that month's time, he established, God established, a wonderful church, the church of Thessalonica, the Thessalonians. And that's who these two letters are written to, First and Second Thessalonians, is to those members of the church at Thessalonica. Now, that's just our opening text. Look back in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain, but even after that we had suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. 
We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Now remember what happened in Philippi. Uh, this, that's where they were previous to this. Uh, they were beaten. They were in prison. Remember the, the Philippian jailer who got saved? Paul says, you all know what happened to us there. <laughs> he said, and then we came over to your, your place. Verse 3, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we, uh, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. One of the reasons Paul was writing this letter to these Thessalonians, not only was to give good, clear, doctrinal instructions about uh, the church and Christ, but also as a defense to himself and his ministry team. You see, these men had risen up against uh, Paul and them, not, not these unbelieving Jews, but the, uh, the, the Judaizers. We call them Judaizers. The word Judaizer is not in your King James Bible. However, we do see ex an example of these Judaizers. And all a Judaizer is is, is a, a Jewish person who believes in Christ, but also believes you must follow the Mosaic laws. And so they were, they were staunch in the belief that even the Gentiles, when they accepted Christ, had to be, go under circumcision, had to avoid the meat, and had to do all these different laws. And so these men we refer to as Judaizers. Uh, and we see the example of them and what kind of disruption they were causing to the church over in Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, uh, you see verses 11 through 14. Uh, this is Paul speaking to that church there in Galatia concerning this, this issue he had with these types of men. Galatians 2, verse 11. And Paul writes, But when Peter was come to Antioch, now remember Antioch was the sending uh, church of Paul in his ministry. They were the ones that laid hands and they sent out uh, by the Holy Ghost. They sent out uh, Paul and uh, I believe it was Barnabas at the first. Uh, they sent those men out. And that's where Paul was headquartered at the time. And these men came. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before, uh, for before that, certain came from James. He didn't eat with the Gentiles. Now what's happened here, uh, Paul is there in this prominent Gentile place in Antioch. And a lot of people have been coming. Even Peter's been there. He's been joining with the Gentiles. And uh, no problem with that. But then certain came from James. James was the church leader in Jerusalem. And so uh, these, these Jews came from Jerusalem over to Antioch to visit. And what happened? He did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Now remember, of the circumcision means Jews. That's, that's what that means. So these are Jewish men who came, and they are believers in Christ because they've been sent by James, the, 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 the elder or the, the pastor, if you will, of the church at Jerusalem, is, is came there. Verse 13, And the other Jews disassembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dismutilation. So what's happened when these Jews came, Peter started looking around and he's like, I don't know what's going to happen when they see me eating with these Gentiles, these filthy Gentile dogs. And so he gets up from the table, goes over and joins the Jews. But Barnabas says, well, Peter's going, I'm going too, because I don't want to look you know, stupid. 
And so they get up and they go over and, and sit with the Jews. Verse 14. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? And so here Paul was setting the record straight here. If you're going to believe in the grace of Jesus Christ and understand that we are no longer under the Jewish laws, that it does not apply to the new covenant, then why in the world are you getting up and joining these Jews like this? What, is that, what kind of message is that sending? You are in the wrong, Peter. That, that, was, some, that was some scandalous stuff going on. Uh, Peter, I mean, he was the apostle that, that ushered in the New Testament church. He was the Lord's right-hand man while the Lord was here on earth. And for Paul to get up and talk to him like that in front of all these witnesses, oh, you talk about embarrassing and scandalous. This, I mean, it to us, we, we can't really comprehend the tension that was there at that time, but you better believe it was bad. And so these these Judaizers, getting back to our text in First, or first Thessalonians, these Judaizers who were, were saved people but believed that you must follow the law, they had come out against Paul accusing him of preaching for monetary gain and for world's, the world's fame. Uh, an easy believism too. They were accusing him of, of an easy believism and taking money from the churches and things. So they were actually lying about Paul and his ministry team. And so Paul gives a defense of himself uh, about this. And he had to deal with this his entire ministry, Paul did. And so he says in verse 7, back in our text, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. And so what Paul's explaining here is these people are getting up and saying that we're being a certain way, that we're, we're here to take advantage of you, to take your money, to, to, uh, to teach a, a deluded gospel and things like that. He says, no way. You're witnesses of how we behaved ourselves here. Look, we came here, we imparted the gospel to you, but we would give our own souls if that was what was needed here. We love you, because we dearly love you. And so that's the first trait we see here of a biblical father, of someone who loves people, a father loves. So that's the first trait. There's going to be three I'm going to bring out. A father loves. And I know a man is supposed to be tough. I've been taught that all my life. You know, you've heard the term... Real men don't cry. You know, that, that's a lie. The Lord Jesus cried. Is he not a real man? Several people in the Bible we see that are God's men cried. So uh, that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, you can love and still have uh, be masculine. You know, today in this society we live in, they want to demasculize men. They want to feminize them. They want men to, blend, to be more like a woman. And so, so you can't even tell the difference between a man and a woman today. But in fact, they, they would rather everybody be what they now call a binary. <laughs> you know, I don't identify as a male or a female. I'm a binary. Oh, really? Well, go look at yourself in the mirror before you take a shower and tell me you're binary. A binary is one of these G.I. Joe dolls that you can buy that don't have any anatomical parts. <laughs> that's, that's a binary. 
Uh, people are not born binaries. You're a male or female. God created one or the other, a male or a female. Uh, but here we see these traits that Paul is mentioning. He says that we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. And so love, that's, that's really the context behind that word uh, gentle because he, he's mentioned as a nurse cherisheth her children. That word cherish, of course, we know is also interpreted as love. And so you can look at that in terms of this being a loving, nurturing way. It's similar to what he wrote to the church in Galatia. He said this, Galatians uh, 4 and 19, My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Paul had these endearing terms for the churches that he was a part of. In any of these letters you see, he always uses these touching, endearing, uh, fatherly, loving terms. And for a man that used to be breathing out threatenings and slaughters against Christians, uh, my, how God changed his heart. We see he's no longer that same old man that he once was. He's a new creature. Now, make no mistake about it, Paul was a tough man. He had to be. He had to endure a lot of hard trials. We remember the Lord uh, told uh, uh, the man there in uh, uh, Damascus, uh, he was going to show Paul how much he will have to suffer for his namesake. And so um, Paul had to be a tough man. He endured these trials. Uh, he had to suffer stoning and, and beating and riding and uh, being thrown out of places and put into prisons and all this. But despite that, him having to be tough, he was still tender. He was still loving. Uh, and like I said, there are times that you must chasten those that you love, your children. Uh, the Bible teaches that. Trust me, I, I received much chastening from my father. I mentioned this over at uh, Northside uh, not long ago when I was a preacher. It might have been outreach. I don't remember about how many whippings I'd had and that old leather belt my dad had. He'd pull that belt off and whip me until you could see the, the leather stitching from the belt in my backside. And, uh, you know, today people would call that abuse. That wasn't abuse, that was chastening. And uh, I am thankful for it today. Back then, I was not. I wasn't thankful for it when I was on the receiving end. But now that I've grown up and I understand the reason my dad ever whipped me was because he loved me. If he didn't love me, he wouldn't care. There would be no reason to whip you for doing wrong if, if you didn't love that person. You just let them go do whatever they want to. And so... Uh, there are times when people must be chastened. Um, you'll see in the Bible, the Bible says in Proverbs 19 and 18, Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. I, I, I know of a person uh, that grew up around the same time I did, and any time that his father whipped him, his father broke down and cried and went on and apologized and all this stuff and felt so bad for whipping uh, his son. His son grew up to be a very spooled person. And he didn't whip him very hard, trust me. <laughs> the Bible says in Proverbs 3 and 11 through 12, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Uh, so before you write this off as, oh, well, that's the Proverbs, that's the Old Testament concept. Well, in the New Testament. The Hebrew writer expounds upon what it says in Proverbs. 
Hebrews 12 and 7 says, If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days uh, chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And so, while chastening may be a part of being a father, uh, a true biblical father, um, and it's part of being an earthly father, we're told that we're not to purposely mistreat, provoke our children. Uh, for example, in Ephesians 6 and 4, And you fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Colossians 3 and 21, Fathers provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And so all of this, of course, exemplifies the biblical trait of love of a father, love of one who shepherds over the flock, as Paul was doing. But as an earthly father, that biblical trait of love is uh, probably the greatest of all of the traits that we're going to look at. We've got two more, which brings us to the second trait of the biblical father. Excuse me. Eyes itching. <clears throat> the second trait we find of a father, a biblical father, is a father labors. A father labors. Look at verse 9. Paul says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Uh, sticking with the Thessalonians was not an easy job. That first, you, you can guarantee that first day that he entered into that synagogue in Thessalonica, he was getting back flack. I mean, he was getting uh, people up against him. Most people would have turned around and said, uh-oh, let's go, guys. They're, they don't want us here. We, we're not going to be able to do any good here. That's what most people would have done. They would have just cut and run. Uh, but not Paul. He labored here. Uh, it required much labor on his part. He expounds on this even more in his second letter to him. Over in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7-10, Paul says, For yourselves know how you ought to follow us. Now, when Paul says these things, he is able and willing to use himself as an example for people to follow. He's not being conceited and saying, I'm a perfect, holy, righteous man, and you should do everything that I do. There's some pastors like that today. You know, they make you act, they, they act like they're above any anything and that you're a scum. And if you'll just live like me, then you'll be fine. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, you can follow my example in the ministry from everything you've seen from me. And so he uses himself. In fact, in one place, he says, use me as an example. He says here, for yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. 
For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Now, what Paul's describing here is, according to, to God, he had every right to receive money from the ministry for his livelihood to keep up. According to what God says in his word, Paul did not have to work a different job, a secular job, to, to make sure that he had food and, and uh, a place to stay. The church should have provided that. Paul says that. He said, but I did not take any of that from you. I didn't do it. And I commanded, he says, I commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Now he's, he's including himself and his ministry team. I told you know, Silas and Timothy, hey guys, you don't work, you don't eat. And so he's making sure that they know that. Paul was what we call today a bivocational pastor. A pastor who preaches the gospel and also works an outside job. That's what I do. That's what I'm considered. Uh, so he not only worked in the gospel ministry, but he worked in the secular workforce. And of course we know that he was a tent maker by trade. He was taught that as a young man. And uh, it was much needed in that day. A lot of people dwelled in tents. And uh, it was needed. So Paul, he would go wherever he went. He would go to where they made tents. And he would apply for the job. And of course they would accept it because he had many years experience in it. Had been trained in it. And so that's where he would begin working to keep, to make sure that he had food to eat, had uh, a place to stay, so he could rent a place if needed, whatever. Uh, he didn't have to rely upon people uh, for money. Uh, by all rights, Paul could have lived solely off the ministry and it did his right. Listen uh, what he says in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 9, 13 through 15. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? See, that was God's um, um, pattern. Uh, those men that kept in the temple, they lived off the things of the temple. They lived off the sacrifices that was given, the extra parts of the sacrifice. And so it was God's pattern that people that were in the ministry, they lived off the ministry. And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so has the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. That's what Paul says. Now, how did he know this? Remember Paul's three years in the Arabian desert when he was communing with God? When God set him aside and taught him many things? This, no doubt, was one of those things. If you're a preacher of the gospel then you live off the gospel. Verse 15, But I have used none of these things, Paul says, neither have I written these things that it should be done unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glory in void. And so, Paul again, he's given a defense of his ministry. These men are accusing me of, of ill-gotten gain. Uh, you know, he says, uh, filthy lucre's sake, that's what the Bible, that's the term the Bible uses. Men who preaches for filthy lucre's sake, they only preach for the money. And there's a lot of people like that today. Uh, but Paul says, I'm not going to be beholden to any man. I'm going to work, despite the fact that God said it was fine for me to live off the gospel. And so I can say without a doubt, my dad was a worker. I, he worked all the time when he wasn't fishing. <laughs> no. Uh, my dad, I remember starting out now, he worked at Standard Knitting Mill. Uh, that was before I was born. He worked at the Standard Knitting Mill and worked himself to death. He hated that place. Uh, he went to work for Perky's Upholstery. He talked about that time where he helped them upholster furniture and things. Uh, 
But my dad realized that he needed to do something more in order to uh, for his family to have uh, what they needed to live on. And so my dad attended UT and he graduated with honors with a master's degree in education. And he went on to become a Knox County school teacher, history teacher. And he, he retired as a history teacher. He worked many, many years as a teacher. And a lot of people say, well, what, how hard is that? That's a lot of work. Uh, I know the last probably 10 years that he was a teacher, he, he began not liking it anymore because of the bureaucracy that was in the Knox County um, school system. Uh, they were dictating what he could say and couldn't say, that, you know, how they're doing today. And so his hands were kind of tied, and he began loathing his job and counting down the days to his retirement. He was able to retire, I believe, at 59 and a half or something like that, retired early. Uh, but just because he was retired doesn't mean he stopped working. Um, the whole time I was growing up, he was working. I knew that every day my dad was getting up, he was putting on a suit and tie, he was driving to the school, and he was going to teach all day, and then come home. And when he came home, he didn't just sit and watch TV. Uh, he worked. He kept up a garden. He, uh, he worked at the, around the house. He kept the cars up. Uh, we didn't have the money to go and pay people to do everything for us. My dad did it. And so he taught me those basic skills, life skills. I learned by watching my dad. You know, if your car tears up, you got to fix it. You don't have anybody else to rely on. So I can work on cars. I can usually fix anything that goes wrong with the car, unless it's something brand new that I have no idea about. Uh, if something tears up the house, I'm not a carpenter, but you can guarantee I'm going to do something to try to fix it. Uh, I learned that because my dad labored. The reason he labored was because he loved the family and he wanted to make sure that he could provide for the family. Fathers labor. They provide for the family. You've heard the term deadbeat dads? I don't believe in deadbeat dads. There's no such thing. Not a real dad. Real dads labor. They provide. They love. They nurture. And uh, they do what's needed for their children. If you've got to work two jobs... Work two jobs, whatever it takes. A dad, a father, a biblical father will labor. Um, I've been working for 40 years. Ever since I was 14, my first real job, I've actually been working longer. I started working hauling hay and mowing yards and raking leaves and doing all that when I was probably 10 years old. Uh, but when I turned 14, I took a job uh, assembling bicycles and lawnmowers uh, for a man who did it for Kmart. And so we would go to the Kmart and get new bicycles and assemble them and lawnmowers. We also repaired lawnmowers. And so he taught me those skills. And then I went to work at a nursing home. And then I've had several jobs over the years. But for 40 years, I've labored. I've not enjoyed it. <laughs> Who enjoyed That's why it's called a job. You know, if you enjoyed it, it would be called play. Uh, but we work because we provide, because we love our family. We want to make sure we have food to eat, clothes to wear, shoes to wear, have everything that we need. And that's why a real father will labor. He loves and he labors. The third and final thing I want to point out this trait is a father lingers. He lingers. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses. And God also, how holily and justly and unblamely we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. 
And like I said earlier, it would have been so much easier for Paul to pack up his bags, turn around, and run as fast as he could out of the place the first day he arrived. He had no idea what he was going to be up against. He was just going as the Lord led him. And like I said, most men would have left Thessalonica in the dust. I probably would have. If I'd went into that city that was mostly idolatry um, and all that ruckus and riots and coming up against him, the Jews, the Gentiles, the Romans, the Greeks, everyone against Paul, he could have just turned around and left, and most men would. It was hard work. But Paul lingered. He lingered. Uh, despite being hated by everyone outside of this church, outside of the members of this church, he was hated. It was a dangerous job. It, like, like he said, he had to work. So it wasn't like he was coming in and they were throwing money at him and, you know, he had all these, these things. He didn't know from day to day whether or not he was going to be arrested, beaten, stoned, uh, imprisoned, whatever it was. He had no idea. But he kept on keeping on. He lingered. As, as long as the gospel needed to be preached, Paul lingered. A real father, a biblical father, lingers with his family. He sticks with it. He does not abandon his family. He doesn't go out the door and say, see ya. And that's the last I see of him. There are so many children today that's growing up without parents. Because the father does not linger. Because he's missing the other elements, the other traits he doesn't love. If you love someone, you linger with them. You labor for them. You stay there. You linger. While Paul was lingering here, he did several things. He mentions three there. He said he exhorted, which means he called them aside and taught them. He says he comforted, which means he gave them he, he calmed them and gave them consolation. Uh, we all know what it means to be comforted. Uh, it's when you are in, in need to have your soul, uh, your spirit uh, comforted. I mean, the very word itself explains itself. And so Paul said, we, I comforted you guys. He says, and I charged you. And that means he was a witness to. And he taught them the scriptural uh, doctrine of Christ. So I charged you with the gospel. I charged you with this. And so these are all, again, these are traits as well as what a father would do. He, he brings his children aside. He teaches. He, he teaches his family. Uh, the most important thing is to bring your children up under the admonition of the Lord is what we read earlier. Uh, that's what a father will do. If you love them, you will want them to know the Lord Jesus and you will make sure they are in Sunday school or or church, you'll teach them at home. Um, that's what a father should be doing. Uh, we could keep going on and on and on using not only these three traits, but but three more and, and three more. We could keep going them. Uh, but these things were what Paul was using or giving as an example to this church of what a real loving father, if you will, because he says, as a father doth his children, there in the end of verse 11. These are the things as a father doth his children. That is how I feel about you, is what Paul says. A loving father waiting on, doting on his children. And so an earthly father should have these same qualities, these same traits. 
And we don't have time this morning to keep going on all these traits of the earthly father and how they parallel with the things in the scripture. But a father loves, a father labors, and a father lingers. And we can back that up with the word of God. All right, let's go to the word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the message. Thank you for fathers today. Lord, you have uh, you've created some great men who've, who've been great fathers and great examples, and biblical and, and spiritual examples to their family. I thank you for my, my dad, Lord, and, and how he nurtured me and brought me up in the ways of the Lord and taught me and uh, how he loved us and how he labored for us and how he lingered. Lord, we never had to worry that he would be gone. And Lord, I just pray for all fathers today, Lord, that we can we can instill these values inside of us, Lord. And remember, these are spiritual values; these are biblical values, Lord, of what you expect of fathers. And Lord, we pray for those today that are not like this. God, maybe they don't love like they should. They don't labor, Lord. Maybe they're these deadbeats that we've been talking about. Lord, maybe they didn't linger. Maybe they left the home, left their children and family. God, we pray, Lord, that they will come to the knowledge of Christ. Lord, and, and see reconciliation. Restore their families. Restore the love that should be there for their own children and their spouse. And Lord, we just uh, thank you for all your blessings today. I uh, pray that you bless all the fathers and all the families. And Lord, may we remember that the only reason we have any of this is because of you. For these things we ask in the name of Jesus. And amen. All right. Well, I'm excited about Father's Day. Uh, we're going to have some good fried chicken for lunch. A big old chocolate cake with chocolate icing. And as you can tell, I, I need it. I'm withering away to nothing. <laughs> well, that's a lie. <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, it's been good to be here today. And... Uh, are all hearts and minds clear? All right. In fear of the Lord, we're separated.